0: Speech by Barbara Castle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Speech given to the House of Commons on the first of July, nineteen fifty two, by Barbara Castle The Honourable Member for Healy, Mr P. Roberts, has made a very important speech, because he has been telling us that the reason why we must accept the use of force in Korea to settle negotiations is because it is the only thing which the Chinese will heed, as they do not genuinely want the negotiations to succeed on any reasonable kind of basis. The Honourable Member's argument was that we therefore have to go on battering the Communists, with all of the military force at our command, as the only way of settling the situation in Korea. I suggest that the Honourable Member is distorting the whole history of the Korean War when he makes that statement. Indeed, during this debate, and on other occasions in this House, it has always been the assumption of Honourable and Right Honourable Gentlemen opposite, that all the sweet reasonableness has come from the side of the United Nations, that there have been no mistakes on our side, no evidence of good intentions on the side of the enemy, and that, therefore, we must in righteousness continue however reluctantly, to batter them. If any one studies the course of the Korean War objectively, as I have tried to do, and as I had reason to do as a member of the British delegation to the United Nations on two occasions, on one of which Korea was a very live issue, he will feel, as I feel, a grave sense of responsibility about it. If we study the course of events objectively, we will find a background very different from the one which the Honourable Member has pictured to us. What we have had in Korea has been a seesaw battle of military forces, as a result of which, at various points, there have been opportunities for a ceasefire. some of which, in my view, the United Nations has neglected, to the peril of the peace of the world. We all know how dramatic the changes were in the military fortunes of this war. First, in August 1950, the United Nations forces were pushed down to the Poussin bridgehead, when we all thought they would be swept into the sea. Then came a dramatic reversal of fortunes, and the United Nations forces swept triumphantly northward across the 38th parallel, across the bottleneck, and up to the Yalu River. General MacArthur was boasting that his troops would be home by Christmas. But as a result of that drive north being carried too far, he brought the Chinese forces into the war, and by Christmas, instead of being home, his forces were back at the 38th parallel. It was at that point that the first opportunity for ceasefire negotiations occurred. It is a great pity that, thanks to the lack of firmness of ourselves, among others, that opportunity was not properly exploited at a time when there was an overwhelming feeling in the United Nations that an opportunity was there and could be exploited. With China in the war, everybody knew that from that moment we were handling dynamite, and many nations had an uneasy feeling that there was responsibility on the United Nations forces for the fact that China had ever been brought into the war, that she had suffered great provocation, and had obviously come in with the greatest reluctance. At that time when General Wu went to New York there was some evidence of genuine good will on the part of China. Suspicion too, yes, but who could blame her? Suspicion as great as there was on the side of the Americans but definite evidence of a willingness to make a response to any genuinely friendly approaches that were made to her. It was at that time that a move was started in the United Nations to get a ceasefire and a ceasefire committee of three, consisting of representatives of India, Canada and Iran, were given the task of examining the possibilities. They discussed them with the Peking representatives. At that time Peking's attitude, not altogether unreasonably, was, We will not have a ceasefire until we have had political talks. If we have ceasefire talks first, all that will happen will be that the Americans will use the opportunity to build up their strength to give us a knockout blow. Let us have a settlement of the Far Eastern political problems, before we start talking about a ceasefire. There was a not unnatural feeling of anxiety on the part of China to protect her forces, such as we feel for our own troops. When we feel it, it is common sense, but when China feels it, that is sinister manoeuvring. The three delegates of India, Canada, and Iran, with great patience and some optimism, proceeded with their talks, and got the Chinese to the point of saying, if a seven-power conference can be called to discuss a political settlement, we will agree to put the item of the ceasefire talks at the head of the agenda." Many members of the United Nations believed that this offered a real chance of closing the gap between the two points of view. Let us be honest. I know I shall be accused of being anti-American but do not let us make truth a casualty in peace as well as in war." It was the attitude of the United States which made it impossible for that Chinese response to be followed up, because the United States had placed on the agenda of the United Nations a resolution to brand China as an aggressor in order to score a moral victory over her. All the sane voices in the world, who had not been irretrievably lined up in the two blocks urged that we should be careful not to pursue the hollowness of a moral victory, at the price of failures of substance in other directions. It was a tragedy at that time, that once again, following the arguments we have heard this afternoon, that we must not break with the Americans, and must not do anything to break up this great Anglo-American alliance which is the guarantee of the peace of the world, Britain reluctantly, and, in my view, most mistakenly, with the gravest misgivings on the part of everyone who knew what was involved, and in face of grave warnings from India as to the effects of this on the possibility of a settlement, supported that resolution branding China as an aggressor. From that moment every possibility of the ceasefire talks succeeding came to an end, and shortly afterwards the United Nations started a new advance in the spring of nineteen fifty one once again they crossed the thirty eighth parallel but the Communists again not through any excess of original sin but merely with the human desire to protect themselves struck back and our forces were driven south again It was because the military forces of the two sides were deadlocked in a military stalemate around the thirty eighth parallel that Mister Malek's proposal for a ceasefire was broached and was accepted, we shall fool ourselves if we believe that these ceasefire negotiations started out of a military victory by the United Nations. They started out of a military stalemate. Thank heaven everyone had the sense to seize the opportunity to try to end that military stalemate. But that is the fact, and from that moment, the long, sorry story of the ceasefire negotiations started. We must recognize if we are to deal with objective historical facts that time and again the Chinese whatever their faults did make concessions They made a very important concession in abandoning the attitude they had taken up in New York a few months earlier that there must be a political conference before ceasefire talks were held they made a very important concession there Very shortly afterwards they made another important concession. Instead of insisting that the ceasefire line should be the 38th parallel, which was what they wanted in order to save face, it had great moral significance for them. They agreed, after long argument, of course, that the ceasefire line should be fixed at the actual battle-front. At that time, one of the United Nations spokesmen in Korea said that was a big step forward, the biggest I have seen. It was a concession by the Chinese do not let us run away from that fact." But! so obsessed have the United Nations representatives been, all the time, with the concept of winning by force, of battering the enemy into submission, that every concession by the Chinese has been greeted by the United Nations command, not as evidence that a rapprochement with China might be possible, but by the suggestion, "'She is weak, boys! Put the pressure on! She will have to go back further still!' After this great step forward had been made, there was a shock not only to left-wing opinion in this house, but to American journalistic opinion, to British journalistic opinion, and to the soldiers in Korea, at a sudden change in the negotiators' attitude. The UN negotiators suddenly said, we cannot fix the ceasefire line now at all. It cannot be fixed till the armistice talks have ended. This was a change in their whole attitude. I wonder whether honourable members have forgotten the storm, which took place in the British press at that time, when men like Stephen Barber of the News Chronicle came out with stories such as the one published on 14th of November, 1951, and headed, "'Korea! why this muddle?' They said that the soldiers had been astonished by the sudden change in ground, by the United Nations negotiators, in the light of the concessions the Chinese had made. This is what the "News Chronicle" correspondent said: "This kind of thing coupled with evasiveness in answering correspondents' questions and such remarks as General Newcoll's "We insist but we are not adamant," have led many U. S. journalists as well as other U. N. nationals to wonder just how much sincerity there is here!" This confusion even penetrated to the New York press, which said that the American soldiers were alarmed at the apparent lack of sincerity in the negotiations, and at the idea of keeping up the battle pressure, about which their generals were talking, at a time when the men were more preoccupied with getting the matter settled so that they could get home. I therefore ask the House, at this very serious time in international affairs, and in view of the consequences that are involved in our discussions to realise that there have been grave faults on the part of our own negotiators in the United Nations, as well as on the part of the Chinese. They are faults which, in my view, spring from the fact that increasingly, while the rest of the world has been willing to keep the door open for a political settlement in the Far East, America has been steadily closing the door, and increasingly substituting for a policy of negotiation. A policy of building a ring of military might around the Chinese people and the Russian people, until they reach a point at which they have to accept her terms. We know how greatly the American policy has changed during this time, and how President Truman's brave remarks at the outbreak of the Korean War, that Formosa was to be neutralized, have given way gradually to a situation in which, openly and flagrantly, Chiang Kai-shek has been installed in Formosa as a base from which he is planning counter-revolution in China. We have had articles in the most responsible newspapers in Great Britain describing quite coolly none of us turns a hair, how he is setting up his revolution implementation institutes there, and we have seen articles in the Manchester Guardian of how he has been preparing for the invasion of the Chinese mainland, when the possibility of peaceful settlement with the Chinese government has broken down. Then again, how can we believe that the settlement of the Korean issue has been made more possible by the conclusion of the Japanese peace treaty, on the basis of the most cold-blooded exclusion of China from her rightful place in Far Eastern affairs? The treaty was rushed through for purely military reasons. The suggestion is, NEVER MIND IF WE ARE ENCOURAGING REACTIONARY ELEMENTS IN JAPAN, WHO WILL SCRAP THE NEW LABOUR CODE AND THE LEGISLATION AGAINST THE RE-EMERGENCE OF THE OLD JAPANESE TRUSTS. THE IMPORTANT THING IS THAT THEY SHOULD RECOGNIZE CHANG, AND NOT PEKING. NEVER MIND ABOUT THE POLITICAL CONTENT OF THE POLICY, BUILD UP MILITARY MIGHT. SOME OF US ARE PROFOUNDLY ANXIOUS ABOUT THESE DEVELOPMENTS. Now we are being asked to become silent accessories to a policy which is purely military in content. And it will inevitably follow, that if we have a political vacuum, the military men will come in with their atom bombs. Some curious things have happened. What about the sudden blowing up of atrocity stories? That was very mysterious. But we do not hear any more about it now. Why did it ever have to be launched? We had Colonel Hanley the judge-advocate of the Eighth Army, startling the world last November by saying that thirteen thousand United Nations troops in Korea, including ten British soldiers, had been murdered by the Communists since the war started. Washington said, we have not heard anything about it. That was another example of a mysterious lack of information, and of a lack of consultation between the State Department and the military men on the spot. There were supposed to be British soldiers involved, but there was a flat denial in this house of any evidence that any British soldier was involved. We had Mr. R. M. McColl saying in the Daily Express that the effect of that in America had been to create the massacre mood, and that Senator Taft had said that he was now in favour of using atom weapons on the battlefield." An honourable member interjected, "'What about the germ warfare charge?' I am not approving that kind of story either, but what I would point out is that we started this kind of talk. The first atrocity story came from our side. I am not saying that we are black and they are all white. I am suggesting that we should realize that we may both be grey. Both sides may have made mistakes, and it is imperative for the peace of the world that we stop striking moral postures. Above all, we should look at this new development, which has resulted from the recent raids, and ask ourselves what it means. What does it mean? Suddenly, at a moment when there is only one issue left in the Armistice talks, when the weary months of talks are at last beginning to bear fruit, when the Foreign Secretary tells us he is hopeful about the outcome of the Armistice talks, and when the only matter at issue between us and the Communists is one on which we are on very delicate ground, we have the United Nations command, suddenly turning on the military pressure with new ferocity. Yet there are people on both sides of this house who are not satisfied that we have handled the prisoner of war question properly." Then there was a recent article in the Daily Mail, by Walter Lippmann, the American commentator, headed The Koji Trouble Could Have Been Avoided, in which he analysed the business of the screening. Although he stood firmly by the view that there should be no sending back of genuine political refugees against their will, he maintained that the way in which the questions had been framed, and put to the prisoners, could only have led to one result—that instead of it being a case of our being willing to grant asylum to genuine political refugees in extreme circumstances, it was rather a case of an open invitation to those who wished to find an easy way out of some of their difficulties. Reading the White Paper and the questions put to the prisoners I must say I found no ground for doubting that Walter Lippmann was representing objective and sane opinion when he deplored the way in which this business has been handled He points out that the vitally important questions put to the prisoners during the screening were not drawn up by those with experience of that sort of thing in the last war but were left to the military chaps on the spot. He said that we ought to submit every one of the cases of those refusing repatriation to an impartial tribunal, and not leave the decision to the so-called impartial screeners, who were merely officers in the United States Army. He is an American who is prepared to say that. May not it be that on this issue we are wrong, or at any rate partly wrong? Is this the moment when we should threaten the peace of the world by sending five hundred planes to bomb plants? which had not been bombed before, simply because it was considered to be politically dangerous to do it. Is this the moment at which we should choose to be so provocative? If the Prime Minister does not draw any horrifying conclusion from this raid, he is about the only person left in the country who is not shocked to the core. The New York Times has no doubt about the significance of this raid, none whatever it pointed out that it was the largest raid since the end of the Second World War. The largest raid! And this at a time when the armistice negotiations are being brought to a conclusion! What kind of insanity is this? And we have now, on the front bench opposite, a government who are complacent about it to the point of approval." As I heard the speech of the Prime Minister, I could only draw one conclusion which was that the terms of this motion we shall vote on to-night are much too limited. It is perfectly clear that if we were to get the machinery of consultation for which we ask, the Prime Minister of this country would merely use it to agree with everything that America said. We used to think of him as a bulldog sitting on the Union Jack. He has become a lapdog sitting on the stars and stripes of America. I would leave the house with a word of warning. We are only at the beginning of a new phase of policy in Korea. We are only at the beginning of another attempt by the Americans to fill up the political vacuum with military might, something they have done before with dangerous possibilities. I would ask honourable members to read the very serious article in the New York Times, of 26th of June, written by Hanson W. Baldwin. He has no doubt at all that this is a new phase of the war. He says, these raids are definitely a first step of a programme to bring greater military pressure upon the enemy to force a cease-fire. And goes on. The second step in this programme may be attacks on Najin and the vital rail link that connects this port to the Soviet Union. And the third step, already in effect in a small way, is increased ground pressure against the enemy. Then he adds. If these measures are not successful in forcing a peace the additional measures transcend the narrow geographic frame of Korea they include not only a naval blockade of China and bombing of the enemy's Manchurian and Chinese air bases but political and diplomatic actions in the United Nations and elsewhere whether they will ever be taken depends, however, upon the repercussions of the power-plant bombings and upon political events in the United States between now and November. That is a very tenuous thread on which to hang the peace of the world. Certainly he has no doubt as to the logical consequences of the development of the policy we are being asked to condone here this evening. It leads, with a dreadful logic, step by step, to what we have said in this house we would not be prepared to accept." The Prime Minister went to Washington to cement Anglo-American relations, and promised prompt resolute and effective action to the americans he promised it only on the grounds that a truce had been concluded and deliberately violated by the enemy now we are being asked to carry out similar action not when the chinese are aggressive but when they are passive their only crime now is that they are standing still we in this country if we gave the lead could have a profound and salutary effect upon American policy, without doing any harm to the cause of Western unity. Indeed, when General MacArthur was sacked, President Truman went on the air and told the American people that MacArthur's policy had been threatening the unity of the West, and endangering America's alliance with the West. It had been threatening to leave America isolated. I believe that the Americans would listen, if only we had a voice with which to speak unfortunately never has the influence of this country been so low in world affairs as it is at present the right honourable gentleman the prime minister did not speak for britain tonight i ask the house to see that by passing this motion the voice of britain is not silenced at this hour end of speech recording by corrie samuel